This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. Hello, everyone. We start today's episode with a selection from Ludwig van Beethoven's Symphony No. 3, also known as Eroica, or the Heroic Symphony. He wrote it between 1803 and 1804. And we start our episode today with this symphony, not for the piece of music itself, although it was historically important. It actually sort of broke ground moving towards romantic music. But we start with it because it actually was originally titled Bonaparte named after the famous French general. And Beethoven did this because he believed that Napoleon best embodied the principles of the Enlightenment. Now, when we think about Napoleon, usually from the German context, Napoleon is usually thought of as being kind of the boogeyman. Napoleon is the bad guy. Napoleon is the devil. Napoleon is the Hitler, if you will, before there was Hitler. So you might ask yourself, well, why is it that this German patriot, Beethoven, would dedicate a symphony to Napoleon? And the answer is because in 1799, before the Napoleonic Wars had really started, many, many Germans, many supporters of the Enlightenment, thought of Napoleon not as a tyrant, but as a hero. As a man who actually brought an end to the French Revolution. If you remember our last episode, we talked about the chaos and the violence that was unleashed by the French Revolution. In 1799, about 1800, Napoleon seems to be the guy that can end the revolution, but without taking us back to the way that things had been before. And so Bonaparte is, is again, very, very popular. Beethoven wants to honor him. He says, this is this great man. I'm going to write a symphony for him. But of course, the symphony is not titled Bonaparte. If you try to find it on Spotify or iTunes or something like that, you won't find it under Bonaparte. Because Beethoven kind of had a break with Napoleon. In 1804, among other things, Napoleon ended the First French Republic. He declared himself emperor. He actually had a big ceremony in Notre Dame, and he takes the crown, and he crowns himself. So he's not even taking it from the Pope, right? He's into merit. He's in the idea of social rising. So he takes this crown and he puts it on his own head. Later on, he'll actually bring back nobility. He calls it kind of nobility of merit, but it's it's still nobility. And so, beset with rage, Beethoven takes out his penknife and he literally slashes Bonaparte's name out of the symphony's title page. There were no erasers back then, so you couldn't just erase it. So we actually still have this title page. And you can see where he took his penknife out and literally just kind of cut Napoleon out of the story. The story of the Eroica Symphony 
illustrates the broader story about Napoleon Bonaparte. He's a man who is viewed both as a hero and a tyrant, as both a savior and the devil. And it really depends on the eye of the beholder. If you go to France today, if you go to a country like Poland, Napoleon is still seen as a virtuous person, as a hero, as a national role model. And this relates to the way that he embodies the principles of the Enlightenment, that he translates the abstract values of the Enlightenment into legal and political realities. All these people going around screaming, liberty, equality, fraternity. Those values are nice, but what do they mean in practice? During the height of the French Revolution, in practice, they meant blood. But Napoleon finds a way to end this, to restore order without turning back the clock necessarily. And so for a lot of people, he's kind of like the bringer of a new dawn. He's a man that awakens nationalist feelings, who achieves national glory, and who, again, consolidates the good side of the French Revolution and translates it into reality. Now, for other people, Napoleon is the opposite. Napoleon is the boogeyman, right? He's the nightmare that you tell your children about. For other people, though, and especially Germans, Napoleon, as I said, he becomes the boogeyman. He's the nightmare that you scare your children with. It's not just that the French Revolution unlocks all this kind of violence and and uncontrolled blood flowing on the streets, but it's the idea then that Napoleon consolidates all of that into power and uses that power to conquer others. Napoleon becomes the first modern dictator. He becomes not the bringer of freedom to Europe, but the man who takes it away. Right? One of the hardest kind of conundrums for politicians to solve or political strategic thinkers is how do we bring our values, especially the value of liberty, to other people? One can think about the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. One of the ideas was we're going there to kind of bring democracy to the Middle East. But if you're instituting that at the point of a bayonet or at the point of a gun, well, that becomes complicated because those people didn't choose democracy. And so what are some of the consequences that flow from that? So outside of France, there are quite a few Europeans like Ludwig von Beethoven who saw Napoleon as a kind of modern day Julius Caesar. He's the guy that kills the republic, that kills democracy. If you want a kind of modern example, think about the Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. He's supposed to be up there defending the galaxy, and yet what he's really doing is concentrating all that power in his own hands. Now, the reality is that Napoleon is both of these things. He is a man that consolidates the revolution. And we'll talk about some of the things that he did that actually, again, translate those revolutionary principles into reality that save the the virtue of the French Revolution and stabilize them. But he is also a dictator. He is also a man who quelches freedom, including in France itself. So let's start by exploring how Napoleon represented the good side of the revolution or the heroic side of the revolution. And in fact, Napoleon's whole career kind of backs this up. He embodies in many ways, the spirit of the Enlightenment. And one of the ways he does this is through the idea of social mobility. And if you think about history's great conquerors before about Napoleon's time, before about 1800, the modern era, 
Many of them are nobles. Many of them are kings. Well, we've talked in this course already about Louis XIV. We could talk further back about Charlemagne. We could talk about Roman emperors, many of which come from noble families. Napoleon is not a guy who is born into wealth or born into status. Napoleon is a guy who comes from a small island called Corsica, which is off the southeastern coast of France. And Corsica is a very interesting place. It's not really even French, right? It, it is today. But at the time, around the time of Napoleon's birth, it was actually kind of more culturally speaking Italian. In fact, Napoleon originally did not call himself Bonaparte. He had an Italian spelling to it, Buenaparte or Buenaparte. Napoleon's family was kind of middle class. They had some lesser noble connections. His father was a lawyer. But they were actually kind of more pro-Corsican than they were pro-French. When Napoleon is an adolescent, he actually rails against the French, flirts with the idea of joining a movement that is anti-French. Corsica, for those of you that aren't familiar with French geography, is really on the outskirts of French society. There's not a lot of communication. There's not a lot of movement between that isle and the mainland. Right? If you want to be in the center of French society, you need to be in Paris. Maybe you could be in Lyon. Maybe Marseille. But Corsica is kind of like the boonies. It's the backwater. It's like saying you're from the upper peninsula of Michigan, or you're from Hawaii, or you're from maybe West Virginia, right? It's not seen as kind of a cosmopolitan place where you would expect someone who's going to become a big deal in politics to come from. And yet Napoleon transforms himself into the most powerful person in Europe in a thousand years. He is the most powerful person since Charlemagne around the year 800, which is kind of an interesting comparison because one of the things Napoleon does is he puts the final stake in the life of the Holy Roman Empire, and that was started under Charlemagne. So how does he do it? How does he move and rise socially? Well, the answer, of course, is going to be merit. Napoleon is, is very fortunate. His father uh, has some connections, even though he has connections to the lesser noble family. So Napoleon is able to go to a military training academy. He gets a military education. Later on, he goes to the main French École Militaire in 1784. And one of the things that Napoleon was really good at was mathematics. And so if you're good at mathematics, they throw you in the artillery. So artillery involves a lot of mathematics. Make sure you're, uh, you're firing at the right angles. Now, Napoleon is not just a, a military guy. He's the type of person that's really involved in lots of different things. He loves to read. He loves to think. And perhaps one of the things that might surprise you most is that Napoleon also likes to write. There's this kind of parallel track where Napoleon becomes a writer and writes things like romances. He actually wrote romances. He wrote political tracts, but in the form of kind of fictional stories. He wrote thousands and thousands of letters across his time in politics and even before that. And many of these letters have actually survived. So we see he's like a prolific writer and just as generally someone that's very involved in the world around him. Now, after Napoleon finished his work at the École Militaire, he graduates, he's assigned into an army unit, and he's kind of bored. There's not a lot going on before 1789, before the French Revolution breaks out. When the revolution does come, he writes a pro-Jacobin pamphlet called Le Souper de Beaucaire in 1793. And it's basically just the story of these guys meeting at an inn, and so they start talking politics with the local Jacobin guy. 
And the Jacobin guy convinces them all that the Jacobins are right, that the revolution is the way to go, that the monarchy was corrupt, and kind of wins them over. So Napoleon is seen by the Jacobins as someone who's loyal. And this is a period when the army itself was dominated by monarchists, by nobles. And so it's kind of going through this period of transition, right? And so the question of which generals can we trust? Which generals are loyal? This is a really important question. Well, Napoleon gets seen as someone who is trustworthy. And so he's appointed to be the artillery commander of this assault on a town called Toulon in the southern part of France. Toulon had basically been a bastion of anti-Jacobin spirit. Uh, At one point, they actually rise up in rebellion against the Jacobins. And then they say, okay, we've got control of the town. Clearly, we're not strong enough to take on the French ourselves. Let's invite the British to come in. And so the British Navy is there. These anti-Jacobin rebels are there. And taking the city seems like it's going to be a pretty tough thing to do. But Napoleon is smart. He's brilliant. Obviously, becomes very accomplished, militarily speaking. He comes up with a plan to use the artillery to seize this piece of high ground. Where once they have the high ground, they control access to the city. They can fire down at the British ships. And so once they take that fort, basically the British pull out, the town surrenders, and it becomes a big French victory. The results of this campaign are so impressive. His political connections develop not through patronage, not through the idea of birth or marriage alliances, but just through the fact that he did something that at the age of 24, Napoleon becomes a general. Can you imagine that? Those of you that are are 24 or older, what were you doing at 24? Were you named a general? Probably not, right? That seems like something should be more of a senior position. Now, luck plays a a role in Napoleon's rise as well. We're going to make a long story kind of short. As you all know from the previous episode, in 1794, the Jacobins are overthrown. And so Napoleon's connections that had kind of worked so well that he had developed, all of a sudden become liabilities. He actually gets thrown in jail briefly. But he kind of says, you know what, I'm not really in this for the politics. I'm in it for France. I'm in it for the revolution. I'll show loyalty to the directory, which is the new government that emerges in 1795. Now, as luck would have it, Napoleon finds himself in Paris right around the time of this royalist rebellion in 1795. He winds up commanding the soldiers who are tasked with defending the directory, defending the current government of France against several thousand royal rebels that are trying to take over. And he famously does it. The the, uh, famous historian named Carlyle said that he did it with a whiff of grape shot, right? So they fire the cannon, the royalist forces run away, and he saves the day for the directory. And so as a reward for this, in 1796, he's appointed commander of the French army of Italy. Now remember, Napoleon's still in his mid-20s, right? To be appointed the commander of an army is a pretty big deal, The Austrian counterpart he was fighting against, to give you an idea of how big a deal this is, that guy was 71. And so here you have this young upstart Napoleon. And so they give him the French army of Italy in 1796. Now, part of the reason they gave it to him was that they wanted to honor him. But part of it, too, was that they thought of the French army of Italy as kind of the secondary army. It's kind of the distraction. right? The French at this point are fighting against the Austrians. And there's kind of two ways to attack Austria, right? You can either go through Italy and try to go across the Alps and and up, you know, through the southern part of Austria. 
Or you can just invade through the Rhine and go through central Germany, where you have the Austrian Empire, you have the Holy Roman Empire, you have the allied states to Austria there, allied German states. And so the basic idea is we're going to go through Germany because it makes more sense, but we'll let this guy down in Italy, we'll give him an army, we're not going to spend a lot of money on it, we're not going to give him a lot of, of troops, but we'll, we'll humor him, he can be kind of a diversionary attack. Make a long story short, Napoleon is not only successful, Napoleon wins the war before that northern army that's going into Germany, the army of the Rhine, before they can really even do anything. And there's a couple secrets to Napoleon's success. One of the things he does is he says, okay, I'm fighting against a commander who's 71, guy with a lot of experience. Maybe I should look and see what he tends to do. Maybe I can read the history, the evidence, if you will of what this guy did, and I can use that to anticipate what he's going to do. And so that's exactly what Napoleon does. He has a very good idea of what the Austrians will do because he studies them. Now, Napoleon is also a master of logistics, both he and his staff that he puts together. When he shows up in Italy, the forces are not very well equipped. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have boots. And Napoleon starts this furious writing campaign Got to get resources from the mainland. Got to get resources from local people. The quartermaster who had been there was not very effective. Fires that guy. Says, we got to bring in somebody else. Bring in somebody who's capable. Start organizing your military based upon merit. Again and again, I'm using this word merit because it's such a big deal. It seems obvious to us today, right? Obviously, you want to put people in positions of power who've earned it, who've shown that they're capable of doing great things there. But in 1800, or 1797 to be specific, this is still very new. This is still very kind of radical. Another thing Napoleon does that gives him an advantage is that he plays upon the nationalism of his troops. He is not just a general who has been placed there by a position of birth, by his sort of caste standing, by his connections. He gives speeches to his troops and he says, you know, we're here fighting for France. We're here to defend the revolution. I'm here to protect you. And he inspires his soldiers. Their morale is much stronger. Think about it. Would you fight for your country? If the country was threatened, would you be willing to sacrifice for it? Well, clearly a lot of people do because that's one of the biggest ways that they recruit people into the military. Would you talk about honor? You talk about duty. You talk about sacrifice for others. Now, the Austrians, on the other hand, the traditional military units, they're there fighting because they're soldiers. In some cases, they're conscripts. It's a vocation. But if it's a vocation, your goal is to make money. Your goal is to survive. Your goal is not to to die on behalf of others. If you get into a situation where you think you're going to lose, you think you might die, and get out of there. And that's essentially what happens, right? Napoleon inspires his forces to fight. They have more elan, E-L-A-N is the military term for it, a more esprit de corps, right? A spirit of corps, a sort of camaraderie. The last secret to Napoleon's success is a fairly important one, which is that he is a master of speed. The French army is so into the idea of mobility, of speed, of striking like lightning, that during the warm summer months, they don't even sleep in tents. 
You could put up a tent. You got to take down the tent that slows everybody down. Just sleep out under the stars. Wake up early, get ready to go. Boom, you're there. And so Napoleon uses all of these tactics to varying degrees to rout the Austrian forces and their allies in this initial campaign in 1796-1797 in Italy. The Piedmontese, who were the Austrians' allies, are knocked out of the war in just a couple weeks. Napoleon brilliantly at one point, he kind of inserts himself between the Piedmontese and the Austrians and makes the Piedmontese decide, are we going to stay with the Austrians and reinforce them? Or are we going to defend our capital of Turin? The answer is, well, we better defend our capital. We, you know, we don't know how much we can trust these Austrians. Eventually, by the fall of 1797, Napoleon's forces are within 100 miles of Vienna. They've actually brought down the main commanders of the army that was in Germany that was going to try to fight the French up there. It's become a kind of emergency situation. And in 1797, the Austrians signed the Treaty of Campo Formio. This is a humiliating treaty that surrenders to France the Netherlands, most of northern Italy, and it secretly agrees to let the French extend their borders to the Rhine. Now, the Austrians also get the right to kind of take over uh, Venice, and Napoleon sort of helps out with that. But this is, this is jaw-dropping. This is unbelievable to have won these concessions. And it's not just that Napoleon wins the war. He wins the peace as well. Napoleon is the one who is negotiating this peace treaty with the Austrians. He's not waiting for orders from Paris. He's not letting the situation kind of tell him what to do. He becomes a kind of master of his own destiny. And in the eyes of the people of France, he becomes a national hero. Now, the last part of the story of of Napoleon's rise and how he comes to embody the values of the Enlightenment and saves the revolution is essentially that. He's the one that rescues the revolution. We mentioned in our previous podcast that we had gone through all these kind of convulsions, especially after they kill the king and, and you can't have a constitutional monarchy anymore. So we're going to have a republic. We can't have a republic because we need to create order. We have the Committee of Public Safety. That turns into a dictatorship under Robespierre. But they overthrow Robespierre. They get rid of him. They say, okay, we're going to have a directory. Nobody's really happy with the directory either. By the time we get to the late 1790s, the directory starts to realize, hmm, this Napoleon guy is actually becoming kind of a problem. So they ship him down to Egypt, and he basically gets stuck there because the British Navy sinks the French Navy. And so for a couple years, Napoleon is just basically there. There's this story that Napoleon's troops basically use the sinks for targeting practice. It's not clear if that's actually something that took place, maybe more of a historical myth or legend. But as things get worse and worse, there are a number of people involved in French politics, and they say, okay, we can use the popularity of this Napoleon guy. We'll bring him back to France. We'll hoist him up and say, he's here to save the revolution. And then we'll just kind of manage him from behind the scenes, right? He'll be the figurehead of the government, but he, what does he know, right? We'll really be the ones pulling the strings. And so in 1799, Napoleon does return to France, He participates in a coup known as the 18th of Brumaire. And to make a long story short, he's proclaimed as part of this sort of triumvirate that will now rule over France. And his official title is the First Consul. And a couple days after he becomes the First Consul, 
Napoleon kind of shows, you know what? I know where the real power is. I know that I'm the one with the charisma. I'm the one with the popularity. And so he basically kind of writes the other guys out of the story. The first consul will act as a kind of dictator. And then later on in 1804, he'll declare himself emperor and kind of just get rid of the constitution altogether. Now, once he's in power, Napoleon actually starts to transform again the values of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and fraternity into an actual reality. One of the first things he does is he says, okay, I've got this absolute estate, but I need to make it efficient. I need to centralize it. I need to rationalize it. And so he looks at the map of France and he says, we have all these kind of historic territories, but historic lines are not rationed out. They're just kind of an accident of history. And so he erases those lines and he creates these new administrative units called départements, which is spelled like departments. And that these make clear lines between administrative districts. You think about states in the United States, it's very clear where North Carolina ends and South Carolina begins. These territories have been very clearly worked out. Some are based a little bit more on history, but usually there's like a geographic feature that they kind of cling to. And so Napoleon rationalizes the map of France. Another thing he does, which makes a lot of sense to the modern mind, is that he ends the practice of selling offices. One of the things that they did back during, before the French Revolution, is they sold public office. If you want to be the tax collector, great. Pay a lump sum to the state, and now you have the power to collect taxes on your own. Collect whatever taxes you want. Collect as many taxes as you want. Right? So obviously, selling off public power is a very bad idea because then people will use it for private purposes. Napoleon ends this. He says, look, we're, we're all in this together for France. The French state represents France. Why would we do that? He abolishes the rights and privileges that were associated with noble title. Now, some of these had been kind of destroyed during the very beginning of the French Revolution, but he completes the process and he puts it into law. Napoleon also helps build consciousness of being French. Remember, we talked about in a previous podcast episode, the way that states usually play a role in breaking down those barriers between localities, right? States play a part in integrating their populations geographically with each other. Napoleon begins this process through the policy of conscription. He requires all men between the ages of 20 and 25 to serve at least four years in the military. Although, as in the United States until at least the Civil War, there were exceptions that could be made. If you were married, you didn't have to go. If you managed to buy a substitute, if you said to the government, uh, I, look, I've got this other guy over here, he's going to go in my place. Then they said, okay, that's fine. We don't really care who goes, just as long as we have a soldier. So between 1800 and 1814, over 2 million Frenchmen enter military service in this manner. 2 million men from all over parts of France. Now think about what the effects of this conscription could be. You have people from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, from the central part, from all of those little localities, and you pull them together and you put them into a unit and you jumble them around and you put them under fire and go through drills and training and all that stuff. Now all of a sudden they are having experiences beyond just their local identity or their local territory. 
They're having experiences that force them to think about who is us and who is them. And part of the story of who the us is, is it's the guys that are in the foxhole with me. It's the guys that are under fire with me. It's the guys that are from all these different places. And the one thing that unites us is our Frenchness. And so these soldiers begin to develop a national consciousness. It's sort of the very beginning of this phenomenon. You're pulling people from all over the different parts of France, from all the different backgrounds. You're putting them through this experience, and they come out thinking of themselves as Frenchmen. Another thing that Napoleon does that's really kind of brilliant is he's very good at creating alliances and creating kind of peace, if you will, between warring factions. One of the main dividing points in French society that's exacerbated by the revolution is the relationship between the Catholic Church and those people who are pro-Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers tend to not like the church. They see it as a harbinger of superstition, as a bastion of, of kind of these irrational thoughts and irrational beliefs. And so they try to drive the church out of public life. And in particular, the role that the Catholic Church played in education in France, especially before the revolution, Enlightenment thinkers thought that was really problematic. And so when the French Revolution really gets going, as it radicalizes, it becomes increasingly hostile and violent towards the Catholic Church. It takes land from the churches, from the monasteries. At one point, it's hard to think about this, but the Cathedral of Notre Dame is basically not being used. It falls into kind of disrepair. Napoleon finds a way to balance the interests of the church with the desires of the Enlightenment thinkers to drive the church out of public life. One of the things that he does is he eliminates the mandatory tithe. So the mandatory tithe, basically, if you lived in France, you had to pay a certain percentage of your income to the church, regardless of whether or not you actually believed in it, regardless if you were a member of that, uh, of that community. Napoleon dissolves religious orders like the Jesuits, who are seen as kind of an, an international fifth column. You know, their, their real loyalty is to Rome. He confiscates a decent amount of church property and sells off those properties to raise revenue for his wars. He institutes religious freedom. One of the most important kind of signs of achieving the ideas of the Enlightenment is that Jews are given civil rights. Now, Napoleon does all of this, but at the same time, he reaches out to the Pope in Rome, who had been briefly deposed, and he says, look, we like the church. We think the church should have a role in French society. We want to end this kind of war. Let's do a deal. You agree to support me, and I'll agree to support the kind of return of, of church life, right? a return to normalcy. We're going to bring priests back out of the shadows. We're not going to uh, let them be killed anymore. We're going to stop the violence against the church. And so he pioneers a way for the two sides to get along, which is really kind of amazing if you think about it. Now, we talked in the beginning of our podcast, we talked about this idea that Napoleon was very much an embodiment of the idea of merit. Napoleon also encourages this within the French state. One of the things that he does is he invents a new type of high school called a lycée, L-Y-C-E-E. And these lycées have a standardized curriculum. These lycées are not there to teach you the Lord's Prayer or teach you about local agriculture. They prepare you for bureaucratic service to the state. 
They make sure that there is a cadre of intelligent, literate, rational people that the state can use, can promote and put into positions of power so that it can run efficiently. In 1809, Napoleon actually institutes a new exit exam, which is called the baccalaureate. And the idea is that you will prove through this exam that you have acquired the skills necessary for office in the state of France. Now, many of you that are listening to this are probably students and you're thinking, oh my God, you know, he put another exam in there. Why would I like that? Why would I look at that as a good thing? Well, remember, during the monarchy, the way that you got promoted was usually connections. It was through birth and then, you know, usually there were rivalries and you would play those rivalries up in order to be able to be promoted or to get access to a certain office. If we have a comprehensive exam that everyone has to pass to show that they have the required skills, well, all of a sudden, I can't just be appointed to some office. I can't just be appointed a tax collector if I don't have the ability to do those jobs. So part of what Napoleon is doing here is not just creating and expanding upon the French bureaucracy, but he's ensuring that the people who are involved in that bureaucracy can come from what we would call today the middle classes, are people that are advancing socially, not based on connections or alliances or deals, but are doing so through merit. And Enlightenment thinkers love the idea of merit. Now, Napoleon also uses his power to consolidate and to rationalize the French legal system. And in some ways, that word system is misleading because the original or pre-Napoleonic idea of law in France is not just that we have different laws, but there are two different philosophies of law or system of law. If I ask those of you living in the United States to name a court case, how many court cases do you think you could name? When I ask students this, I always hear Brown versus Board of Education, Roe versus Way, Madison versus Marbury. Right? Those of you in the United States, you probably had to take in class in high school at some point. You had to talk about these court cases from 200 years ago. Plessy versus Ferguson, Dred Scott. Why would a court case from 200 years ago matter? Who cares about Marbury? Who cares about James Madison? Well, we care about them in the United States because we have a system that's known as common law. Common law says that when I as a judge go to make a ruling... Past precedent matters. Whatever was decided during Brown versus Board of Education, that carries some legal weight. It's not law in the same sense as as a statute that was passed by a legislature, but it carries weight, and I can't just rule the opposite way without also appealing to previous precedent. So that type of law existed in France pre-Napoleon. But there's another type of law that's out there too, and this is called civil law or Roman law. And these types of laws, the idea is that the legislator or the lawgiver comes up with a kind of a comprehensive code. It lists all of the offenses that you can make. It lists all the punishments. And so the judge is less sitting there trying to think about law and, and how he might express law or she might express law, but is more acting like a kind of bureaucrat trying to say, okay, I've got these punishments, Which category does this fit into? Right, The common law system, the American law system, it's kind of like a contest. You've got the prosecutor, you've got the defense attorney, and the judge is really supposed to be more like an umpire. 
In the continental system, in the civil or Roman model, the judge is more like an inquisitor. The judge is more trying to figure out what happened as opposed to waiting for the prosecutor to present a case, a version of what happened, and then letting the defendant react against it. So the French legal system in the 18th century is a giant mess. Napoleon comes in and he says, I'm an Enlightenment guy. I love the idea of rationalization. This is a mess. What we need is a single code. We need to write down, categorize, systematize, rationalize all of these laws so that everybody knows what they are and they are standardized throughout France. They start working on this problem about 1800, a little bit after Napoleon kind of comes to power. And four years later, and 2,281 articles later, they finish it. Now, this code is not just a harmonization of laws, but it also established some very important legal precedents. Legal precedents that an Enlightenment thinker would look at and say, this is pretty good. This is helping us transform liberty, equality, and fraternity into real, tangible things. The code guarantees the equality of all Frenchmen before the law. It promises freedom from arbitrary arrest and prevents laws from being applied retroactively. Another important thing is it allows adult men to pursue any profession that they desire. Now, that seems to us in the 21st century to kind of be a, duh, of course, you know, men can do whatever they want. Women should be able to do whatever they want too, right? We don't live in a corporate society where we think that our social position is determined by birth. We're so used to the idea of individualism, of individual choice, that we would never even think about instituting that as a law. But at the beginning of the 19th century, that's a pretty big deal. That's telling millions of Frenchmen, your individual desires matter. Another thing the code does is it establishes firm marriage contracts, and it outlaws something called primogeniture. Primogeniture is the idea that the first son inherits everything, which if you're the first son, that's great, right? We love primogeniture. If you're not the first son, well, then it kind of sucks, right? If your father is incredibly wealthy, has a lot of land, and you're the third or fourth son, well, now you're cut out from everything. So what's going to happen to you? So there's a lot of reasons to like this Code Napoleon and to look at it, again, as a symbol of the Enlightenment being realized. Now, there are some downsides to it that at least modern viewers would say, you know, wait a minute. One of the things is that it's very, very patriarchal. The father, under Napoleonic law, has so much power that he can actually veto his own children's marriages. And he can actually send you to jail. So if you're 16 at home, you're listening, and you don't get along with your parents, you say, Dad, I'm not doing that. Under Napoleonic law, Dad could say, well, I'm calling the police. You're going to spend the night in the slammer, son. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine living in that type of society? Gets even better or worse, depending on your perspective. Article 213 of the Code Napoleon stipulated that, quote, the woman owes obedience to her husband, end quote. Think about that for a moment. That's not a sort of cultural value. That's not, well, you know, in our society, women should be doing this or that or shouldn't be. That's a law. Legally speaking, women would owe obedience to their husbands. 
women are unable to sign legal contracts. If you're a woman and you negotiate some kind of contract in Napoleonic France, it doesn't matter. Your signature is worthless. Unless your husband signs below it and says, okay, I authorize that. Last part of the Napoleonic Code that I want to talk about and just mention briefly, maybe one of the most important and most controversial ones for the 19th century. And this is the idea that it guaranteed property rights. One of the debates as the French Revolution is spiraling out of control, as it's becoming increasingly more bloody, as it's becoming more of a social revolution, as opposed to just a political revolution, is how do we get to equality? Even before Karl Marx, there are people such as François-Noël Babouf, who also goes by the pen name Gracchus, who argue that ownership of land is part of the problem. The nobility own all the land, and so basically they can use that to exploit the peasants and force the peasants to do what they want. And so wouldn't a real revolution that really overthrows feudalism, wouldn't that also involve redistribution of land? So in 1796, this guy Babouf gets together this thing called the Conspiracy of the Equals. It's not actually very well planned out. They find out what it is. They arrest Babouf. They kill him. They kill most of his conspirators. But basically, by putting property rights in the Code Napoleon, what Napoleon is saying is the revolution is over, right? We've reached the goal. We don't need to further radicalize, to further turn everything upside down. We're done with the revolutionary part of the revolution. And that makes a lot of people happy, right? That, that's a signal. Okay, the revolution is over. Good. The last thing that I want to say about Napoleon in terms of the heroic aspect is that he doesn't just do this inside of France, but as his armies cross Europe and defeat other European powers, he internationalizes the revolution. He internationalizes the transformation of Enlightenment values and principles into actual reality. When he gets to Germany and he defeats Prussia and he's already defeated Austria, he says, we're going to get rid of this thousand-year-old Holy Roman Empire because it doesn't make sense anymore. Right? As Voltaire famously said, it's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. So why is it there? We don't need a medieval legacy. We don't need your historical rights of all these princes. So he dissolves the Holy Roman Empire And he takes the 360 various German principalities and he consolidates them into 39 independent states. He does the same thing in Italy. He says, we got 10 Italian states. We don't really need that many. Let's consolidate them into three. And at the beginning of his reign, he's not just building states, but he is making them into mini versions of the French Republic. In Northern Italy, he builds this thing called the Cisalpine Republic. And he gives it its own national flag. It has its own national army. It guarantees freedom of religion. Gets rid of the Jesuits and other international religious orders. And it secures the same inheritance rights for men as well as women. As Napoleon's armies reach Eastern Europe, he will look at the condition of Poland, which had been kind of annexed and erased from the map. And he says, okay, I'm not ready to bring Poland back yet. But we're going to create this new thing called the Duchy of Warsaw, which is going to be kind of like an independent Poland. And so Polish forces, Polish people love him. If you go to Poland today, Napoleon Bonaparte is still very much a hero because he's known as someone who supported Polish nationalism and Polish independence. 
Now, so far we've been talking about positive things that Napoleon did. Let's talk a little bit about why people hate him and why some people would argue that he's kind of the devil. One of the things that he does, of course, is that in the name of bringing the revolution to an end and and of kind of ending all the chaos that had been going on, is that the system of government he sets up is not really what we would call democratic today. There's an element of democracy to it. Basically, there was uh, universal male suffrage, but you didn't actually vote for your representatives. You voted to create a list, and then the government could pull people off of that list and make those people its administrators. Those people then in turn voted on a further list, and then there was this body called the Senate, and they could select members of two other bodies called the Tribunate and the Legislative Body. And these two bodies debate laws, they vote on laws, but the one thing they don't do is actually create the laws. The laws in the Napoleonic Republic are created by the first consul, a.k.a. Napoleon. Now, when he comes up with this idea for the system, Napoleon says, okay, let's confirm this, right? This is a republic. The people have a voice. Let's put it to a plebiscite. Let's see what the people think. But this plebiscite is not a free and fair election. Napoleon is not interested in really hearing the voice of the people. And the final results bear that out. Over 3 million Frenchmen vote in favor of this new constitution. 1,562 brave souls voted against it. Now, you could probably ask just about any question in a poll, and to get 3 million people in favor of it and 1,500 against, statistically, is almost impossible. Napoleon has secret police. Napoleon is making extrajudicial threats and arrests and things like that. This is not equality. Another way that we can kind of see Napoleon violating the principles of the Enlightenment is in the area of censorship. Remember, we talked about censorship and how that was such a a thing that the Enlightenment thinkers hated. They wanted this free conversation. They wanted this free discussion. In 1790, when freedom of the press is first implemented in France, there were over 335 journals in the city of Paris alone. So 335 journals. By the height of Napoleon's rule in 1811, after they had established press censorship, there are a grand total of four that were remaining. So 335 down to four. And you can bet those four were very, very pro-Napoleon in terms of their political position. So he creates this system where we're going to kind of transform again the value of the Enlightenment into practice, but to do that, He has to secure sort of absolute power, which one could argue then violates the idea of equality and certainly the idea of liberty as well. There's another problem that we've already kind of alluded to with Napoleon, especially once you get outside of France. This is the idea of what does it mean for France to tell other countries and other peoples that they must adopt French customs, French values, and in many cases, the Code Napoleon itself, right? It's not the general will of the Germans or the Italians or the Poles that are driving these reforms. It's the fact that Napoleon defeated the state that was there and took over and kind of forced this upon them. So we're really talking here about the arbitrary will of a single person. And that sounds more like absolutism. That sounds more like despotism or even like monarchy. Now, when the French go in, they don't just sort of reform those societies and say, 
we have these values, now you have to take them as well. They're in the middle of a great war, or a series of wars. And so they require their allies to furnish them with soldiers, to furnish them with money. In many cases, they're forced to adopt pro-French economic policies. So I set tariffs so that French goods kind of receive preferential treatment. One of the big things that Napoleon, of course, is known for is invading Russia in 1812, which in part was an attempt to kind of force everyone or to continue to force everyone into this continental system where everything was basically about benefiting France economically. We have this massive army that sets out from Moscow. But what you probably didn't think about it was that over half of those troops in the Grande Armée are not French. They are Polish, they are Italian, they are Austrian, German. But the majority of them come from outside of France. Why are they there? Not because they hate the Russians. They're there because Napoleon kind of forced those countries to conduct drafts, to give him troops to be able to fight those wars. I mentioned that there are financial considerations that Napoleon requires. Uh, One of the things the French do is they have this historical alliance with the Spanish, and they request over 6 million livres per month from the Spanish government in order to fight these wars. 6 million livres is a massive sum, and it essentially bankrupts the Spanish monarchy. And by the time we get to 1807, Napoleon experiences this, sees it, hears the complaints. He doesn't say, oh, well, I'm being too hard on my ally. Oh, it's not fair. It's not equal. He says, well, if you're not going to pay, then I'm going to invade you too. And so even though the Spanish had been on the French side, had been supporting the French, in 1807, they actually invade their own allies. Napoleon dethrones the king of Spain and replaces him with his brother, Joseph. That doesn't sound like equality. That doesn't sound like liberty. For these reasons, especially in Germany, Napoleon becomes hated. Napoleon is, to many Germans, the devil. They don't just dislike him. They start working actively to kind of undermine him, and they're waiting for the moment when they can all come out together and sort of rise up against the French. Now, in Germany in particular, this this movement against Napoleon sort of develops in two different ways. On the one hand, you have a kind of top-down, state-centered development that happens especially after the Prussian defeat at the Battle of Jena, J-E-N-A, in 1806. This is one of many battles that uh, basically the Prussians and then the Austrians later, they have their own battles that they lose. But from time to time, they each keep trying to fight against Napoleon and they keep getting routed on the battlefield and they suffer increasingly harsh penalties for it. But anyways, after the Battle of Jena kind of destroys Prussia as a major power, basically takes away all of their territories that were on the Rhine River, the Prussians realize, hey, we got to reform. This Napoleon guy, we might hate him, but he's really smart and he's really onto something. And so maybe we need to make Prussia a little bit more like France. One of the important ways that they do this is they look at France and they say, well, Napoleon has rationalized French government. Maybe we should do the same here. Instead of having a council of advisors where we just have a bunch of people in the room and they all talk to the king and give him advice, let's have distinct ministers. Let's say your job is to be in part of the army. Your job is to be in charge of economics. 
your job is to be in charge of religion. And that way, when somebody screws up, we know who to blame. That way, we don't have conflicting orders about what to do. Another thing they do is they create a general staff. They open up the officer ranks in the army to non-nobles. They lift restrictions on the purchase of land. And they abolish the monopoly on professions. One of the big, big changes that they begin to make is they begin to say, look, we want to promote meritocracy. We want people who are good at what they do to move up the social ladder, become officers, maybe not generals just yet. That's pretty radical. We'll get there eventually. But we want to kind of unlock the power of German or Prussian society to build up the power of the state. Under the leadership of a guy named Alexander von Humboldt, the Prussian university system is reformed. And they say, okay, our job is no longer just to teach people vocationally oriented information, but we want to teach people to learn and think for themselves. There is no better symbol or statement of Enlightenment belief than the idea of self-emancipation, intellectually speaking. The idea of being able to learn for yourself. And so it's not complete, right? We still have serfdom. It's modified a little bit, so there's a little bit more mobility. You still have nobility. There are still restrictions, especially religious restrictions in Prussian society. But it's beginning to change. It's beginning to become rationalized, modernized. Now, at the same time that we have this movement from above to try to shape Prussian society or even German society from above, there is also this wellspring of emotion that comes especially from students and from teachers during the tail end of the Napoleonic Wars. Basically, the people that are most interested in nationalism in this period look at what's happened to Germany and they become very angry about it. They look at the unity of the French state and the French emerging nation, and they're very jealous about it. They look at Germany and they say, look, okay, we still have, after Napoleon, 36 different states. That's way too many. What's going on here? And so they begin to agitate, and they begin to pine, and they begin to take actual actions to try to build this idea of national identity and to prepare again for the idea of war. So. This leads to the invention of something that many of you are familiar with today, which you never associated with nationalism or warfare, but that's gymnastics. Did you know that gymnastics were started by a guy named Friedrich Ludwig Jan during the Napoleonic Wars? And the whole idea was to train to get yourself ready so that when the moment came and you could actually begin the uprising against the French oppressors, that your body would be ready for it, that your mind would be ready for it. Think about what gymnastics is. It's exercising various muscles. It's developing self-discipline. It's enduring pain and hardship in order to prepare your body to take certain actions. And that's basically what gymnastics became. It was, again, a symbol, an outlet for people, especially Germans, to begin to practice their nationalism. And you see similar efforts that that develop in other countries. These sort of gymnastic associations 
patriotic associations that will persist long after the Napoleonic Wars have ended. Okay, I know we've skipped over a lot of the the blow-by-blow history of Napoleon, uh, especially the wars that he fought after he established the First French Empire in 1804. Hopefully one day we can come back and have a separate podcast and explore that uh, because there is a lot going on. It's fascinating. One of the most fascinating things that happens revolves around the idea of Haiti and this question of liberty and slavery. And so basically, the French revolutionaries are very much on the Haitian side and want to emancipate them and want to end slavery. And it's the planners who kind of oppose them. But once Napoleon seizes power, Napoleon wants to keep slavery because it's very lucrative. He's not so interested in this question of liberty, especially for Africans and their descendants in the, uh, in the Caribbean. He wants money. He wants to fight the British. And so Napoleon will actually send Polish troops to Haiti to try to crack down on the independence movement that develops there under a guy named Toussaint Louverture. And when that happens, the British say, well, okay, if the French are now for the plantation owners, then we British must now be against them. We will use emancipation and liberation as weapons against the French. And so the British government eventually becomes an abolitionist force, begins to preach this idea of ending slavery, mainly because it was helpful to them in the war. But the consequences, as we'll see, last obviously much longer than that. So the short version of what happens after 1804, basically Napoleon is fighting various battles constantly against Britain, and the British are always trying to talk everybody else into the war, the Russians, the Austrians, the Prussians. At times they get one of them to agree to join, at times they get a couple of them to join, but Napoleon always wins. Even in 1812, when he makes his massive invasion of Russia, they actually win the Battle of Borodino right outside Moscow. Napoleon actually occupies Moscow in the late fall, early winter of 1812. He says, okay, I beat your army. I occupied your capital. I won, right? And the Tsar Alexander I does something really smart. Instead of just saying, okay, you captured my flag, you win. He kind of pulls back and he burns Moscow on the way out. And he says, now you're stuck here in Moscow in the middle of the winter in 1812 you don't have any supplies, you may have won this battle at Borodino, but you're in a world of hurt. And so Napoleon realizes that. He races all the way back to uh, continental Europe. His army kind of disintegrates. He puts together a new army. They lose this big battle uh, outside of Leipzig called the Battle of the Nations. Goes all the way back to France. Eventually he abdicates. They stick him on this little island right off the coast of France. He comes back in 1815, famously shows up the uh, king at the time, uh, the, the new restored French king, sends soldiers down to, to attack him, to capture Napoleon. And Napoleon famously kind of goes out there and says in front of all of them, look, I'm your emperor. I'm your guy. I'm your national hero. I commanded our winning armies everywhere. Shoot me. Shoot me if you have to. Do what you must. And of course, those soldiers who had followed him for so long have no interest in, in doing that to him. And so they actually mutiny and go along with him. The king uh, of France runs away. Looks like Napoleon is back. We're going to go through all this again. And so once again, we have this big battle 
at a place called Waterloo in Belgium, modern-day Belgium, where Napoleon loses and is once again forced to abdicate. And this is where the expression that you've met your Waterloo comes from, right? It's kind of the end of the road. Uh, it's, it's everything is falling apart. Uh, you have now officially lost, and there is no second chance. Napoleon gets sent to a, an island called St. Helena in the South Atlantic, and he dies in 1824, kind of alone, sad, you know, having gone from basically not much to master of Europe to virtually nothing. But Napoleon's legacy is profound. Napoleon begins this process or advances this process of transforming the role between state and civil society. We talked about this idea of there was a gap between government and people, where they really, for the most part, don't want a whole lot to do with each other. Napoleon begins to break down that gap, whether he was trying to do it or not, right? And, and you can argue both ways. In certain ways, things that he did pissed people off. In certain ways, they liked what he did, right? But that distance between state and society is starting to collapse, and it will collapse even more as we continue into the 19th century. And of course, Napoleon also does bring many of these values of the revolution into being. Right? If we think about liberty, equality, and fraternity today, most of you probably don't associate that with blood in the streets. Most of you probably associate those things with a true and just society. And part of that is because Napoleon found a way to make them work. So that's all for our show today. Uh, as always, if you enjoyed it, please like, share, and subscribe to us on the streaming service of your choice. In our next episode, we're actually going to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking a lot about politics. We've been talking about wars and political leaders and economics a little bit. Uh, but we're going to focus now more clearly on the massive economic change that's going on in this period. We're going to start talking about industrialization. Because the changes that are going on politically, socially, are also, in terms of their scale, are also occurring economically. The two are, are not directly related, but they kind of happen around the same time, depending on where you are. So in our next episode, again, we're going to unpack the idea of industrialization. We'll talk about what that actually means and, and how that change was actually experienced by the people who lived through it. So join us next time, dear listeners, as we take history off the page.